0: Thank you for listening to our church podcast, where it is our joy to share helpful truths from the Bible. We pray this serves as one more tool to help develop leaders within our church and community who love and honor Jesus and reveal it by loving others. If you have any questions or comments about any of the messages, we invite you to join us on any Wednesday, 6 p.m., for a group discussion on the passages and sermons found here. Scripture reading this morning will be found in the book of Luke, verses 37 through 54. I will read the first verse, and after you join with me on the second verse, and continue with me every other verse. That's Luke chapter 11, verses 37 through 54. Would you please stand and reread these verses? While Jesus was speaking, a Pharisee asked him to dine with him, so he went in and reclined at table. The Pharisee was astonished to see that he did not first wash before dinner. And the Lord said to him, Now you Pharisees cleanse the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. You fools did not make the outside make the inside also, but give as alms those things that are within, and behold, everything is clean for you. But woe to you Pharisees, for you tie mint and root in every herb and neglect justice and the law of God, though without neglecting the others. Woe to you Pharisees, for you love the best seats in the synagogues and greeting in the marketplaces. Woe to you, for you are like unmarked graves, and people walk over them without knowing it. One of the lawyers answered him, "Teacher. In saying these thing, you insult us also. And you yourselves do not touch the burden with one finger of your finger. Woe to you, for you build the tombs of the prophets whom your fathers killed. So you are witnesses, and you consent to the deeds of your father, for they killed them, and you build their tombs. Therefore, also the wisdom of God said, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill and persecute, so that the blood of all the prophets shed from the fountain of the world may be charged against this generation. From the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who perished between the altar and the sanctuary, yes, I tell you, it will be acquired of this generation. Woe to you, lawyers, for you have taken away the key of knowledge. You did not enter yourselves, and you hindered those who were entering. As he went away from there, the scribes and the Pharisees began to press him hard and to provoke him to speak about many things, laying in wait for him to catch in something he might say. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your perfect word. We thank you for all the things you do for us. We're so happy to be here today to hear your spiritual food. We ask that your blessings be on the pastor as he delivers his message. We ask this in our Lord Savior's name, Jesus Christ. Amen. You may be seated.
1: A lot of people think that they like Jesus. Our culture has created an image of Jesus that is very different from what we see in the Gospels. Uh, People today tend to think that Jesus was just a nice guy uh, who said some, maybe some profound, wise things. And we're often shocked when we actually open up the New Testament and read some of the statements that Jesus gave. And of all of the harshest statements of Jesus, he was especially hard on the religious crowd, the scribes and the Pharisees. Jesus had... Uh, not much good to say about these false religious systems. And today we're going to see an account of Jesus ruining a Pharisee's dinner party. Uh, he gets invited over there for a meal and, and very quickly the whole thing turns south. We'll pick it up in verse 37. It says, while Jesus was speaking, a Pharisee asked him to dine with him. So he went in and reclined at the table. And the Pharisee was astonished to see that he did not first wash before dinner. Now, the, the, the Pharisees had many traditions. We've talked about the Pharisees quite a bit uh, in the past. They're, they're all throughout Luke's gospel mentioned frequently. Uh, they had many traditions, one of which was washing your hands before you ate. Uh, and this was not so much for cleanliness sake, it was a ritual. So they, they didn't have soap or anything like that. It was a very small amount of water that they would dribble on their hands, sort of as a, a ritualistic cleansing before they would eat their food. It was a custom that they had, and they they taught others to uphold as well. It was not, however, something that the Old Testament law commanded. And this is something I need to clarify right now before we get into the rest of the text. Jesus was a Bible believer. Uh, Jesus quoted throughout the Old Testament many times, and he he upheld uh, Scripture as being authoritative. He regularly pointed to the Scripture, quoted from Scripture in fact, in Matthew 5 or 17, Jesus said, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. So Jesus was a big fan of the Bible. Uh, he kept the law. He lived by the commands of scripture. What we're talking about here with the hand washing is not a scriptural command. It is a tradition. The Pharisees believed the Bible, but they also had a bunch of extra rules that are not found in scripture. Uh, They held to many things like this ceremonial hand-washing before a meal, something that that isn't a biblical command, but it's something that they just did, and they expected others to do as well. In fact, they had an entire book uh, filled with all of these extra rules called the Mishnah, Uh, and it is humongous. I tried to read it in college once. Uh, I couldn't even get through like 3% of it. The thing is massively large. Um, All of these very detailed rules about what they believed you could and could not do. Um, And some of them are just silly things. Like you couldn't carry things on the Sabbath uh, unless you carried it from your elbow or your hair or in your sandals. Like they had just random workarounds, but you couldn't carry it in the palms of your hands. Uh, you couldn't tie certain knots on the Sabbath, but you could tie other ones. Just silly stuff um, that they had come up with. And so uh, what we're talking about here are traditions. These are not biblical commands. Uh, hand washing before a meal was not something that the Bible commanded them to do. And so Jesus didn't do it, and this really upset them. And so as we think about how this applies to our own life, we just need to be careful uh, to differentiate between things that are traditions and things that are scriptural commands. Okay, So here are a couple of examples. Uh, church attendance. <laughs> tradition or command? A lot of people would say, oh, that's just a tradition. Uh, that's something that, that, that Christians do. You can do it if you want to. It's not a big deal, though. Uh, I would suggest that's actually the wrong view. The New Testament clearly and explicitly teaches that Christians should gather in local churches. Hebrews 10 verse 24 says, Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So uh, that is a pretty clear command of Scripture that we are to gather as a church. Um, church attendance is not something that somebody just came up with and said, wouldn't it be good if some Christians would meet uh, every once in a while for for teaching of the Bible and things? No, this is something that was established by Christ uh, and commanded throughout the New Testament. And by the way, church attendance is not just about hearing preaching, although that's part of it. But to be honest, uh, you can go home right now, look on YouTube and hear better preaching than you're going to hear from me. Uh, there's a lot of good preaching on the Internet. Uh, that's not really the the entire focus of why we come to church. A lot of people think that coming to church is just kind of an event that you attend like going to a movie or attending a concert you come out here and listen to me talk for 45 minutes that's really not the point uh, as you see in those two verses in hebrews uh, the author there says we're commanded to meet together and it has nothing he he doesn't say anything about preaching uh, he says you're supposed to encourage one another provoke one another to love and good works and so uh, church attendance a crucial part of it at least is the local body of Christians encouraging and provoking one another to live for Christ. Uh, it's not just an event where you come sit and listen to somebody talk. It is a, it's more like a family gathering. And so attendance is definitely uh, a command in scripture. It's not just a, tradi- a tradition. Uh, and you, you all can feel very good because you're here today. So I'm, I'm preaching at the wrong crowd. Uh, but this is a command, not a tradition. Now here's an example of a tradition. Okay. That's, that's not a biblical command. Uh, I am currently wearing a suit and tie, okay? I, every week when I preach, I wear a suit and a tie. Uh, not all preachers do that, and that's okay. <laughs> because the Bible never says, uh, thou shalt wear a tie when you preach, okay? Jesus didn't wear a tie. Um, it, it's not a big deal. I have reasons why I do it, but it's, it's not the end of the world to me. Some of my favorite preachers uh, wear a polo when they preach in jeans. Um, that's an example of something. It's a tradition, Okay, it is not a biblical command, so we need to uh, not conflate those two together. Because sometimes we make a big deal out of things that the Bible doesn't talk about. Uh, we can make a really big deal about our traditions and our ways of doing things. And when you see another church uh, that does something a little bit different, it's uh, very easy to kind of look down our nose at them. Um, but but we just need to be careful. Uh, scriptural commands are binding on all Christians. Traditions are not. Uh, it doesn't mean traditions are terrible. It doesn't mean we should never have traditions. Because traditions are not bad in and of themselves. A tradition becomes a problem, however, when you start imposing it on other people. It's not wrong to wash your hands before a meal. Uh, It becomes a problem when you start uh, attacking somebody because they didn't wash their hands before the meal. So a tradition becomes a problem when you start imposing it on others. A tradition also becomes a problem when we forget that it's just a tradition. Again, sometimes we we act like our traditions are in fact biblical commands or we hold to them as tightly as we do scripture. And that's a problem. Uh, me wearing a suit and tie not a problem. Me preaching at people or looking down on other pastors who wear a polo, now we have a problem. So let's differentiate between biblical command and tradition. And what Jesus did not do here, he wasn't violating a scriptural command. Uh washing your hands before a meal was not found anywhere in the Old Testament. It was a tradition. And so uh, the Pharisees were, uh, it wasn't wrong for them to do this. It wasn't wrong for them to wash their hands. Uh, Perfectly fine to do. And in fact, I bet Jesus probably did it on occasion. I think in this instance, he purposefully did not do it just to get this reaction and start this conversation with them. Uh, The problem was not that the Pharisees washed their hands before eating. The problem was their judgmental attitude towards anyone who chose not to. And so in verse 39, Jesus responds to their complaint, and he really just gets right down to the heart of the issue with the Pharisees. Verse 39, the Lord said to them, uh, to him, Now you Pharisees cleanse the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. You fools, did not he who made the outside make the inside also? But give as alms those things that are within, and behold, everything is clean for you. Uh, The Pharisees were really good at cleaning up on the outside. Uh, They did all the religious stuff. They went to synagogue every week. They prayed publicly and openly so that everybody could hear them and and see what great godly people they were. Uh, They even did things like the, the way they dressed and the way they greeted one another in public places so that everybody around them would know, oh, that's a Pharisee. That's one of those really strict, separated, devout religious guys. There was just one problem. They were wicked on the inside. And Jesus is perfectly blunt here. Uh, You guys look great to others. You look like uh, great God-fearing people, but on the inside, you're full of filth. Uh, And he uses the comparison of a cup. Uh, A cup that's clean on the outside and filthy on the inside isn't one that I would want to drink out of. Uh, I mean, can you imagine? You you have a filthy dish of some sort. You just kind of wipe the outside, put it back on the shelf. Uh, Nobody would do that. We all understand the inside's what matters. Uh, Nice if the outside is clean too, but the inside is really the crucial part. And so these people looked very godly to everybody around, but their hearts were rotten. All of their religious actions were done to impress other people. In other words, they were more worried about what others thought of them than what God thought of them. And that last little bit there about giving as alms those things which are within uh, seems to be just a way of saying, clean up the inside. Uh, Do acts of mercy and compassion, not as a public display of your holiness or piety, but as an expression of your genuine love for God. Jesus continues in verse 42. But woe to you, Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and every herb and neglect justice and the love of God. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. Uh, They loved traditions and they loved tithing and they were extreme with it. Uh, Tithe simply means tenth. It's Uh, A principle in the Old Testament of giving 10% of your income started, well, it started back in Genesis, but uh, really became a a command under the uh, Levitical law. When you had the Levites and the priests who were sort of like the preachers, they were in charge of the the temple uh, teaching and things like that. And so uh, they would live off of the the tithes that the rest of the tribes would give. They would give 10% of their income to the temple to care for the needs of it uh, and also to support the work of the Levites who ministered to them. Uh, not very different really from what we have in the New Testament. There's a similarity there for sure. Uh, we give in order to support the church and those who teach. And that brings up the question, of course, of tithing for us today. I'm not going to take too much time to address this because I covered, I think last summer, I preached a whole sermon on tithing. But suffice it to say, there's a lot of debate about whether or not we as Christians are still under this command um, to tithe today. Some Christians believe that we should, that the pattern of the Old Testament carries through into the New Testament church that we as Christians should give 10% of our income to the church. Um, a lot of good people believe that. Personally, I'm not persuaded of that. Um, my, my view is that the, the tithe was Old Covenant. And I would point out that after the cross, tithing is never commanded. Uh, the New Testament does command us as Christians to give and to give in proportion as God has blessed us. We are to give cheerfully, generously, and sacrificially, but never in the New Testament do you see a percentage uh, where we're told you need to give this exact percentage of your income or anything like that. So to me, tithing is maybe a good starting point in keeping with the pattern of the Old Testament. I have no problem with that, uh, but I don't see it as a law like it was in the Old Testament. But in Luke 11 here, it certainly was a law. Remember, this is pre-cross. Technically, uh, most of the Gospels is Old Testament. (laughs) Okay, the new the new covenant starts when Jesus dies on the cross at the very end of the Gospels. And so at this point in time, uh, these people were under the Old Testament laws, and one of those laws was tithing. They were to give 10% of their income to the work of God. And the Pharisees were extreme about it. Uh, They gave 10% of everything, including uh, their spices. Uh, Jesus mentions these plants and things that they had, that they would make sure that they meticulously counted and gave 10% of all of it to the work of God. And you notice that Jesus says it was not wrong of them, to do this. He says, you should not have neglected these, but also do the other. It wasn't wrong of them to tithe. They were not wrong for wanting to keep that law. At the time, this was a biblical command. And so today, it's not wrong of you to come to church. It's not wrong of you to tithe if you choose to, but it is wrong if that outward action becomes the totality of your Christianity. If you think that you kill the big one every week by coming to church and writing your your tithe check and, oh, I'm good with God because I do these outward actions, that's when it becomes a problem. And the Pharisees were very good at tithing and keeping those outward laws, uh, but the whole loving people and loving God stuff, they weren't real big on. (laughs) They missed the whole point. Uh, They missed the foundation of the Old Testament, which Jesus says was love God with all your heart and love others as yourself. They missed all of that but they were very fastidious and strict about giving 10% of their spices. They neglected what Jesus says are the far more important parts of God's law. They neglected love of God, but they tithe on their plants. They missed the main, the main things that God wanted them to do, and they focused on the very smallest parts. There's two ways that people often approach God. One thinks that being a religious person means conforming to a set of rules. Uh, do's and don'ts. That's the pharisaical way. Jesus taught a radically different approach to God. He said what really matters is what's inside. Who you are is more important than just what you do. Now, who you are on the inside will necessarily affect what you do. Uh, that's not a, a cop-out to say, well, I don't have to live according to the Bible. I'm a great person on the inside. No, no. Uh, who you are on the inside will flow out in your actions. However, Some people, and many of us at times, we do all of the outward things, but the heart behind it is missing. And again, sometimes that's you and I. We go through the motions of religious rituals. We go to church, we give our tithe, but in our hearts, we don't have a real relationship with God. Christianity is just a Sunday thing. But Jesus taught that true transformation begins with a heart that loves God and loves others. And out of that heart, flows the actions then that are pleasing to God. Why do we have this tendency? I think all of us as Christians have a tendency at times to focus on all of the wrong priorities in our Christian faith. It's very easy for us to go to church and to do the the right actions but neglect these inward, more important things. And I might suggest that it, it may be because we're more concerned with the thoughts of people around us than how God views us. So we make sure the outside looks really good. Make sure that the outside of that cup is really clean and shiny. And we're less concerned about the inside because nobody sees that, except God does. True Christianity is living with an audience of one. Living with uh, the the mentality, I'm going to get my mind off of what others think, what everybody else, what their opinions of me are, and start worrying instead about what God thinks of me. And if we don't do that, we're never going to get past the shallow, pharisaical approach to Christianity. We need a new mindset. Now, don't worry about what I think of you. That is, That really doesn't matter. Be concerned about what God thinks. Because ultimately, it doesn't matter how impressed I am with your Christianity if it isn't real in your heart before God. We elevate externals and neglect internals because we fear man more than God. And we can do those right actions without any of the right motives. We can go through the motions, and this is what the Pharisees did. They reduced worshiping God down to a checklist of do's and don'ts with no concern for their inward holiness. Jesus continues in verse 43, Woe to you, Pharisees, for you love the best seat in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces. Uh, They loved being highly thought of by others. Uh, The best seat in the synagogue refers to their platform seats. Uh, when they were up in the synagogue, the Pharisees would sit facing the rest of the people in a, in a position of authority, and they would, they would sit up there. They loved being the honored guests. And when a Pharisee saw another Pharisee out in public, there was this uh, very loud, formal greeting to let everybody around them know uh, these are two really devout religious people. Verse 44, woe to you, for you are like unmarked graves, and people walk over them without knowing it. Uh, the graves in Israel were marked because the Jews believed if you uh, encountered a dead body of any sort, you'd become unclean ceremonially, and you'd have to go through a seven-day purification process. It was a whole big deal. And so they would mark the grave so nobody would accidentally walk over one. Jesus says, you Pharisees are like graves without that marking. Uh, people walk over you and walk over the grave without, without realizing the corruption that they're stepping on. And the people who interacted with the Pharisees, they thought they were the most godly and religious people, but they were filled with corruption and rottenness on the inside. Now, this is quite a rebuke. Uh, Jesus is, is at the Pharisees' house for a meal, uh, and this is how he starts the conversation. He eventually, uh, essentially tells them, uh, you guys are a bunch of hypocrites. Your traditions are dumb, your religious acts are hollow, and you're frauds. Verse 45, one of the lawyers who apparently was at the meal Answered him, Teacher, in saying these things, you insult us also. And so Jesus says, Well, you're right. Woe to you guys, too. Uh, the next verse, verse 46, he said, uh, Woe to you, lawyers also, for you load people with burdens hard to bear. And you yourselves do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. And we can understand that. We tend to have higher standards for others than ourselves sometimes. We expect everybody around us to be perfect, and we can spot a flaw in their character from a mile away, but we give ourselves a lot of grace for our own flaws. Verse forty seven, Woe to you, for you build the tombs of the prophets whom your fathers killed. So you are witnesses, and you consent to the deeds of your fathers, for they killed them, and you build their tombs. Throughout the Old Testament we see that many of the prophets that were sent to Israel uh, were killed. They were persecuted, imprisoned. And uh, many of them were actually killed by the Jews. But the Jews of Jesus' day thought that uh, they were better than all of their ancestors. They thought, we would never have done that. We would not have killed the prophets of God like they did. And so they would decorate the tombs of the prophets. They would build these monuments to them as a way of saying, basically, that we're, we're better than those previous generations. We would never have done that. Uh, we love the prophets. We would not have rejected them. Jesus explains this further in Matthew 23. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you build the tombs of the prophets and decorate the monuments of the righteous, saying, if we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have taken part with them in the shedding of the blood of the prophets. Now, is that true? (laughs) Not at all. Uh, They had already rejected John the Baptist, who was a prophet of God, and within just a few months of this occasion, they're going to kill Jesus himself. And so this generation of Jews, in that sense, was worse than any of their ancestors. The Jews had persecuted and killed God's messengers throughout the centuries, but this generation was going to kill the very Son of God. Jesus told a parable in Luke chapter 20 about this rejection of the Pharisees. Starting in verse 9, he began to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard and led it out to tenants and went into another country for a long while. When the time came, he sent a servant to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. So this guy owns a property, a vineyard. Uh, he leaves for a while, leaves some, some managers in charge of tending to his vineyard. And he sends a servant back, uh, basically to get a report, to get some of the fruit, to see how the crop is, and they kill him. They send him away Uh, I'm sorry, they beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Verse 11, uh, he sent another servant. They also beat him. They treated him shamefully. They sent him away empty-handed. He sent a third. This one they also wounded and cast out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, what shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they said, this is the heir. Let us kill him so that the inheritance may be ours. And they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. Then Jesus asked this hypothetical question. What will the owner of the vineyard do to them? Verse 16, he will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. And that, a lot of uh, theology there about the the relationship between Jews and Christians. Um, The Jews rejected God's messengers time and time again. They rejected Jeremiah. They rejected all the prophets in the Old Testament, almost without exception. Uh, They treated them terribly. And so God says, I'm going to send my son, and they kill him. And so what's, what is, the, what is the, uh, the, the man who owns the vineyard going to do? He says he's going to destroy them and give the vineyard to others. This is an analogy of how the Jews had treated God's messengers. God had sent them prophet after prophet whom they had killed and rejected. And finally, God sends his son Jesus, and these wicked men go as far as to kill him too. And because of this act, God will come and destroy them. And this is the judgment that Jesus is speaking about uh, throughout our text. He keeps saying, woe to you, woe to you. That word woe is a way of saying, uh, watch out, judgment is coming. This is a, a warning, a very severe warning of their coming doom. Verse 49 of our text, Therefore also the wisdom of God said, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill and persecute, so that the blood of all the prophets shed from the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation, the generation of Jews uh, that Jesus lived among. Verse 51, from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who perished between the altar and the sanctuary, yes, I tell you, it will be required of this generation. Abel was the first of the prophets in Genesis. You know the story where Cain kills his brother Abel. Uh, Zachariah is right at the end of the Old Testament, uh, and he's the last of the prophets to be killed. And so Jesus is saying that the blood of all those prophets from the the previous generations of Israel's history who had been killed, it will be required of this generation. The punishment is coming to these Jews of Jesus' day because they killed the very Son of God. And the people asked for this punishment. When Pilate said that he didn't find any reason to kill Jesus uh, toward the end of Matthew's gospel, he tries to reason with the crowd and says, don't do this. And the people answered him, his blood be on us. And on our children. They accepted the responsibility of killing the Son of God, and the punishment was severe. In AD 70, just less than 40 years after Jesus had been killed, Jerusalem was attacked by the Romans. The temple was destroyed. Uh, Hundreds of thousands, some estimates say a million or so, Jews uh, were killed. And there can be no doubt that this was the judgment of God against the generation that had killed his son. Jesus had prophesied, in fact, that this would be the judgment for their rejection of Christ in Luke chapter 21. Uh, Many people, when they read this, they assume it's talking about the end of the world. Uh, I don't believe that's accurate. It seems more likely this is talking about the judgment in AD 70 against this generation of Jews. Verse 5 of Luke 21. While some of them were speaking of the temple, how it was adorned with noble stones and offerings, he said, as for these things that you see, the days will come when there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And they asked him, Teacher, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when these things are about to take place? Uh, Verse 20, When you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation has come near. Uh, Let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let those who are inside of the city depart. And let, uh, let not those who are out of the country Enter it. By the way, just as a side note, this is one of the reasons I don't believe this text is uh, referring to the end times. This is not a worldwide judgment. This is local, uh, specific to Jerusalem. He says you can escape it by running to the mountains. Uh, And so don't come uh, to Jerusalem during this time because uh, it's about to be judged. He continues in verse 22. These are the days of uh, vengeance to fulfill all that is written. Alas for the women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, for there will be great distress upon the earth and wrath against this people. They will fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive among all nations. And Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the time of the Gentiles are fulfilled. There will be signs in the sun and moon and stars and on earth distress of nations in perplexity because of the roaring of the sea and of the waves people fainting with fear and with foreboding of what is coming on the world for the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And if you drop down to verse 31, so also when you see these things taking place, you know that the kingdom of God is near. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all has taken place. And so all that he said in this chapter is going to come upon that generation of Jews, specifically because they have rejected and killed the son of God. They killed Jesus and they said, His blood be on us and on our children. They asked for it. And in 8070, God judged that generation of Jews for the persecution and murder of all the prophets and even worse for the killing of the very Son of God. These are very harsh words uh, from Jesus, uh, but he's not done yet. Verse 52 of our text uh, Woe to you, lawyers, for you have taken away the key of knowledge. You did not enter yourselves and you hindered those who were entering, the lawyers or the scribes, as we probably are more familiar, they were the ones who were responsible to study the scriptures and to teach the people. And they had missed the whole point. They had made the Bible into a rule book instead of worshiping God in sincerity. And since they didn't know God, and they didn't know how to properly handle the scriptures, they also led astray those who were listening to their teaching. If your doctor doesn't know what he's talking about, that can really mess you up physically. Uh, if your accountant doesn't handle your money well, that can mess you up financially. But if your spiritual teacher doesn't understand scripture, that will cost you your soul. So Jesus says, woe to you. Judgment is coming. And This isn't just talking about the judgment of Jerusalem. Here, he's specifically referring to their ultimate judgment in hell. These false teachers thought that they were pleasing God by keeping all these rules, but they were headed for judgment in hell. Unless you think I'm being harsh, just listen to the statements of Jesus. Here are a few things that he said about the Pharisees and the scribes. Luke 20, verse 46. Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and love greetings in the marketplaces and the best seats in the synagogue and the places of honor at feasts who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. Matthew 23:13: Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. For you neither enter yourselves, nor allow those who would enter to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte. And when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. And then verse 33, you serpents, you brood of vipers, how are you to escape being sentenced to hell? Talk about harsh. Uh, Jesus very plainly says that these false systems of religion would send them to hell. Not everyone who thinks they are godly or religious is going to heaven. Not everyone who says they believe the Bible is true is a part of God's kingdom. These were the most religious, the most strict, the most outwardly, at least, uh, seemingly holy people. And Jesus said they were headed for judgment from God because they had rejected him. There is no salvation apart from Christ. Jesus said in John 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. He didn't say I'm a way. Uh, I'm one option. Uh, This is one religion among many. No. He said I'm the only way to the Father. And no one truly worships God who isn't a follower of Jesus. And it's not unloving to say that. It's the truth. It's no more unloving than a doctor telling someone he has cancer just because you don't want to hear it. It doesn't make it not true. There is no salvation apart from Christ. Uh, Jesus taught explicitly that all other religions are false. Uh, it's interesting to me today that so many religions around the world try to claim Jesus. Uh, like, yeah, we, we we think Jesus was a great guy, a great prophet, great teacher. Uh, you really can't say that and reject his main lesson. <laughs> and his main lesson was that salvation is through me, that, that Jesus is the King. He is the Son of God, and he is the only way to truly worship the Father. This is one of the things he taught over and over again, that through Christ is the only way to enter eternal life. You either accept Jesus as Lord, or you reject him and face his judgment. There is no neutral ground. Well, after all that, Jesus got up to leave the Pharisee's house, and I I doubt he was ever invited back again for a meal, uh, the way that one went. But verse 43, as he went away from there, The scribes and the Pharisees began to press him hard and to provoke him to to speak about many things, lying in wait for him to catch him in something he might say. The hard words that Jesus gave these scribes and Pharisees enraged them, and they were determined to trip him up, to find something to accuse him of because of his denunciation of their religion. These religious Jews had many issues. They loved tradition. Their traditions were just, just as important as biblical commands to them. They were hypocrites, very concerned with outward appearances but uh, and having a, an esteemed reputation among the people, but they were filthy inside. The Pharisees also loved platforms. They loved being pious and well thought of as religious leaders. They kept the letter of the law while simultaneously missing the whole point. Uh, they made sure that They were giving 10% of their spices, but they had no concern for loving people. And perhaps most tragically, they rejected the truth. They thought they had the key of knowledge, but they were the farthest from the kingdom of God. Now, it's really easy for us to sit here and look at the Pharisees and think, uh, yeah, those guys are losers. So glad we're not like them. Uh, But some of us, maybe all of us, have some of these tendencies in our own lives. I want to just stop and ask the question, are we sometimes... Like the Pharisees. Instead of thinking about somebody else that you know who's like this, uh, how about you? I would suggest that there is a Pharisaical pull in each of our lives. You may start out following Jesus genuinely, wanting to please him, but it's easy over time to drift into just going through these motions and doing all of the Christian stuff, checking off the items on the list. And maybe today is a good opportunity for a heart check. How is your relationship with God this morning? How was your prayer time going? How was your Bible reading? I'm not just asking, uh, did you read the Bible this week? I hope you did. But I'm asking, why did you? Has that become just another routine that you check off your daily list? Let me encourage you in closing to be more concerned with what God sees on the inside than what people see on the outside. Don't try to impress everybody here at this church with your piety. Uh, Very easy, again, for us as Christians, as a part of a church, to just try to live in such a way that everybody thinks we're so great. Uh, but really, we ought to be more concerned with living for Christ, worshiping God, trying to please the only one whose opinion really counts. One final text, 1 Timothy 1, five. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith.
0: We hope the message you just heard was helpful to you. It means a lot to us that you would join us for this podcast. For more information about our church and meeting times, visit lbcmiller.com or call us at 219-885-9303. We would love to hear from you.